Good morning from a sunny, warm Pacific Northwest. It is indeed Wednesday, June 10th, 2015. This is Tech Talk Today, episode 181. Yeah, not 180. Uh, Well, okay, so technically maybe it should be 180, but I was here. I did 180 yesterday, but we lost the file. It was a great episode, too, so we're going to try to attach some of it to the end of this week's episode. So (laughs) after the end of show clip, there'll be more show. Uh, last week's show, what we could recover of the corrupt file. So you'll get a little bit of 180 from last week. Sorry we didn't have the show for you, so tell you what we're going to do. Since we didn't have a show released yesterday for you, let's double down and make this a great episode. What do you say? So let's start by bringing in our Mumble Room. Time appropriate. Greetings! Mumble Room. Greetings. Hey there. Hello. Hello, guys. All right, so uh, Apple's got all of the headlines this week with Apple Music and all of their announcements around iOS, etc., etc. Spotify's coming in with a one-two punch, though, saying, hey, you've been talking about Apple Music. Don't forget about Spotify. They announced today that they have raised $526 million from a wide range of global investors, evaluating Spotify now at $8.53 billion. Spotify also hits two. Uh, I'm sorry, 20 million paid subscribers, 75 million total active subscribers, and has paid out three billion in revenues to artists. So this is coming out uh, just a couple of days after the Apple Music announcement, showing you that uh, boy, it is really heating up out there. And uh, I'm I I've been thinking more and more about Apple Music versus Google Music versus Spotify, and right now. My camp is in Spotify. That's where I've put my flag. I, not only do I just happen to enjoy the selection and there's some other friends that I have that are on there already. So that kind of inherently drew me to it because they already had playlists and things like that. But also, I prefer the ecosystem of Spotify. I have a Roku device and I have a Spotify app on that. I have a PlayStation 3 and I have a Spotify app on that. You know, those are all, oh, of course, my phone. My Linux desktop, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, Spotify is a great platform for streaming music. Um, but I, 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 I have more thoughts in, on the Apple Music, but we'll, we, we have that coming up later on in the show, I believe. But it, look at Spotify coming out and being like, hey, everybody talking about Apple Music. Well, look at us. Three billion to artists. And that, isn't that interesting when Spotify gets a, such a hard rap for not paying artists? Is it the ZombieCon that says, is it the social thing that people like so much? Yeah, you know... <clears throat> I'm not Mr. Social Networking over here. You can just look at my Twitter profile. You can see I barely tweet. Twitter.com slash Chris Elias. Uh, <laughs> or my Google Plus profile. Or my Facebook page. I do not post very much. I should, especially for this line of work, I suppose. Um, but I just feel like everything I have to say, I say into a microphone. And so when I'm done, I don't really feel like talking more. If I had something really insightful, I feel like I should say it right here. So the spot, the Spotify social stuff wasn't like, ooh, let's look at what I'm listening to on Facebook. <laughs> For me, it was more like, uh, hey, man, I know you like this kind of music, and I like this kind of music. Let's create a playlist, and let's just add the songs as we're listening to them, and then we'll have a great playlist. And that, that I do dig, because I don't have a great taste in music. I mean, I like, I know what I like and I don't like, but I'm usually too busy to discover new stuff. That's probably a better way to put it. And so to have people in my social network that, are better at discovering those kinds of things that I know from my personal life that then can create playlists that I can follow. That's kind of useful. And I already have momentum there with Spotify. Uh, Mumble Room, you guys have any thoughts before we move to our next story? I also yeah, find I that... Think... If it... No, go ahead. Oh, thanks. So uh, I think Spotify had, has one big advantage. If you're a casual, casual user, mm-hmm. you don't have to be a member. You can log in with your Facebook account. You can listen to a song that a friend of you said, listen to that. So this, for me, is a big advantage. 
True, yes, yes. And I actually read there may be a free tier for Apple Music as well, but I don't know more about that. Now, uh, there was another uh, another take. Go ahead. Yeah, no, because uh, when I go to a party, and you know, everyone here in Norway has Spotify, and you go to a party and you want to queue up some music, you know it's on Spotify because everyone's using it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and there's apps built around Spotify as well, so they definitely have the lead. And, um, you know, let's not forget, though, in the end, the music industry wins regardless because they're the ones making money. And the, the music, so there are uh, rumors right now, uh, starting already, of, uh, of, uh, of antitrust investigations beginning for Apple Music in two states in the United States of America. And uh, I, I don't know exactly where to take this. Attorney General wanted uh, to know what the attorney generals wanted to know whether Apple pressured the music labels or whether the labels conspired with Apple or uh, one another to withdraw support from freemium services offered by companies like Spotify. That's what they're investigating. But the thing about this is, is whether whether we're using Spotify or we're using Apple Music, the RIAA and the artists are still making money. So really, I, I just this I just for something something about this 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 case feels hollow to me. Maybe, maybe, maybe there was some conspiring because they're going to make more money from Apple. I don't know. That could be. But it's something to watch nonetheless, I suppose. <clears throat> Speaking of money, SpaceX wants permission to test satellites to deliver Internet service. So yesterday we found out that Facebook was canceling their, plan, their, their big ambitious plans. You know, the ones they made the big video about with the inspirational music and the quotes about providing Internet to a whole new generation of people all around the world, connecting the next billion, Facebook, 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 you know, stuff that helps drive stock up, things like that. Well, yesterday Facebook quietly ended their program to deliver Internet via satellites. Yeah, they didn't get a big promotional video or inspirational quotes. But they did it, and today SpaceX is – they want to take, take a shot at it. SpaceX has filed documents with the FCC asking permission to begin testing a project to serve Internet access from space. The plan calls for launching a constellation of 4,000 small and cheap satellites that would beam high-speed Internet signals to all parts of the globe, including its most remote regions. Hmm. Now, uh, Google has also stepped back their efforts in the satellite area, focusing more on drones as well. So SpaceX's satellites would be deployed from one of SpaceX's rockets, the Falcon 9. Once in orbit, the satellites would connect to the ground stations at three West Coast facilities. The purpose of these tests is to see whether the antenna technology used on the satellites will be able to deliver high-speed Internet to the ground without hiccups. Look at SpaceX go. Facebook and Google pull back, and SpaceX taketh. I'm, I actually think drones probably has a better shot, but, uh, you know, if they could do it at scale, because right now there are Internet satellite services out there that are just so cost prohibitive. That Elon Musk, huh? That boy loves him some space. Good on him, too. Good on him. Hey, uh, this is kind of a bummer. I think it's a bummer because I'm always a little wary of hackers and cyber criminal groups. Whenever we label them that, uh, this story is coming from a net-security.org. 49 suspected members of a cyber criminal group have been arrested in Europe. But here's what I found interesting about this story. It was a joint international operation led by different authorities in Italy, Spain, Poland, the United States, the United Kingdom, Belgium. Uh, and uh, let's see, they had, they had more listed down here, I thought. Polish Central Bureau, Spanish National Police, the FBI. Well, <clears throat> anyways, several different nations work together to bust this. Now, just to me, it feels a bit creepy. It feels a bit creepy because all different things get labeled as hacking. And to have all of these different massively powerful, million-dollar-fueled 
agencies with these growing cyber terrorism divisions, all of them working together <clears throat> to, hunt, to hunt a group of cyber hackers. Um, it, just, it just strikes me as slightly terrifying. Anybody else get a weird vibe off this story in the mumble room? No, you guys are okay with it. To me, uh, so to enable the swift coordination and communication between the different officers involved in this transnational operation, a coordination, a coordination center was established at Europol's headquarters in The Hague. Representatives from law enforcement agencies participating in the Action Day were present in the coordination center, facilitating international information exchange along with Eurojust. <clears throat> at the same time, Europol's specialists provided operational support and on the ground in Italy, Spain, and through the deployment of Europol mobile offices. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Maybe, maybe, I, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I should be worried more about this flaw in iOS mail.app. That's right. A password phishing tool can pwn every iOS machine right now. That's the, that's the registrar's headline. Uh, researchers created this on iOS's 8.3 mail.app. It's an injection kit which exploits a bug in the operating system's native mail client to produce a realistic pop-up of which users are accustomed. We've actually talked about this a while back in January on the TechSnap program. Now we have a proof of concept. Now the radar was for this. That's Apple's bug reports. The radar for this was filed back in January. But there have been several iOS updates since then that have not had the fix. So I have a little video here of it. And we talked about this before. But if you're watching, if you're an iOS user, you're, you're going to be very familiar with this process. So this is a HTML injection exploit in the mail app on an iPad. So a new mail notification comes in. The user opens it up and see it immediately pops up and asks them for their iCloud login. Enter your iCloud username and password. That's a very standard-looking iOS prompt. user enters their iOS username and password. In fact, it already had the email preloaded in there, very nicely so. Now, in reality, that just opened up Safari in the background, submitted that to the user, and captured their password. All simply because they just opened up an email in the, OS 10 ma- in the iOS mail app. And here you can see it happening now on an iPhone as well. It's the same problem. So you could see how this could be a huge issue when you have CEOs and all kinds of business people using iOS devices. And Apple has that big deal with IBM to get in the enterprise. This is an area where even though Apple can push updates, this is so funny. Apple can push out updates to their end users faster than Google. And they still manage to get the security fixes out there. But sometimes they just sit on some of this stuff. I want to talk a little bit more about uh, Apple open sourcing its Swift language. That was announced at WWDC on Monday. We have... Some commentary that may or may not have been captured in the recording you'll hear at the end of the show today. But I've noticed a trend on Google Plus mainly, but really it's any that's just where the headlines are being shared. But I've seen all kinds of interesting analysis on Apple open sourcing Swift. <clears throat> Everything from it was inevitable. Apple had to do this as a as you know a marketing pressure. I've seen uh, open source is like climate change. Even Apple can no longer deny it. I liked that headline quite a bit. Um, Apple, in order to stay relevant, forced to use open source. That was another good one. Really? Are we all so sheepish that we just, again, are back at this again? I feel like we just talked about this. Didn't we just talk about this internet? Come here. Come here. Come come here. Listen. Apple's not open sourcing Swift because they have all of a sudden some grand hope for open source to save the world. Apple is not open sourcing Swift because they are feeling pressured by .NET 
or Rust. Apple is open sourcing Swift because they know that the best iOS apps have to have server-side components, and the best server-side components run on Linux. That's why they released it for Linux, iOS, and OS X. Linux, iOS, and OS X. Linux, not Windows, because people don't run their server-side applications for apps on Windows boxes. They run them on DigitalOcean, and Rackspace, and EC2, and Azure, and all the other VPS providers out there, like Linode and all the other ones. That's where they run the backend infrastructure to these apps, and those are Linux boxes. Now, what Apple has open-sourced is Swift 2 and the standard library. Well, everything in Swift requires a library. Swift is nothing without the standard library. There is no Swift without the standard library. So you have to open-source the standard library, or else open-sourcing Swift is pointless. But how do you access things like the network and the file system? How do you do that under Linux? Because I, I, I believe right now those are all very unique to the Apple platform, how you do those things. So it's, it's not really the big deal that everybody's making it out to be. Uh, a- a- Apple has open-sourced many things before. If you're using Chrome or, or any WebKit-based browser today, you know that already. So it, I just I can't stand this coverage. I just don't get it. It's, it's, it is, is it going to change anything? I doubt it. Unless they open source a bunch of libraries, a bunch of other things, it's really not a huge deal. It's going to be great for iOS developers. That's who this is good for. And maybe other people that could pick it up for other things. And maybe people will take Swift and they'll really do something with it. You know, I've heard a lot of really good praise for it as a language. So maybe there's something to it. But I just, I can't, I just don't get this, this, we jump on this, uh, this train of, we bash Apple for the wrong things. We go after them for the wrong things every time, and they're so easy to dismantle those arguments. Um, I guess I'll just leave it at that, because there might be more in the after show clip that we're going to play. But I, I, uh, if, well, if you want to hear more, hopefully it's in the clip we're going to play. Uh, I think it's still good. I'm not, I'm not, do- I'm not dogging them for it. Um, I just have really been surprised by the reaction. It's not like they're new to open source. Mumble Room, any thoughts? No. No. I think that, I just take that to mean you either agree with me. I mean, you're welcome to disagree too. Uh, but otherwise, I'm just going to take it means you agree with me. Hey, you know what? <coughs> Go ahead. It might not be I don't new know. to it, but I mean, it might not be something they're super comfortable with, right? Um, yeah, for... yeah. On, on no the problem. note of. On the note of Apple open sourcing stuff before, their kernel is slightly open source, but under their own license, because you have there's actually forks of um, Apple's kernel that um that are open source, like pure. I think it's pure Darwin as well. Yeah, Darwin, the underlying side of open of OS X is open source, and you can go download the Darwin code from Apple's website, and you can run Darwin on. Uh, before, before, before there was ever a uh, PowerPC and x86 version of Mac where they had two, ver- two versions and then they just went to x86, back when they were PowerPC only, you could still download Darwin pre-built for x86 and run just the, the base Darwin OS on an x86 computer. I don't know why the hell you would do that. but you, I, Actually, I do know why you would do that. You would do that because uh, if you wanted to run the Darwin streaming server, it was kind of nice to be able to run it on the Darwin OS. Um, and the Darwin streaming server was a way to do RTSP streams back early in the day. Uh, so um, I, I, uh, I, I'll leave it at that because I can't remember all that was in the clip afterwards. But we'll be back tomorrow. Uh, I believe we'll, yeah, no TechSnap live because we've pre-recorded that. No BSD now live today because we pre-recorded that, but they'll still be out for download. And we also have something really exciting today. If uh, you're a fan of Shannon Morris snubs from uh, Hack Five and uh, Tech Thing, episode thirty of uh, Women's Tech Radio came out today, 
And it features an interview with Shannon Morris. And you can go uh, listen to that. just came out this morning. Shannon Morris stopped by and chatted with uh, Angela and Paige about her journey into tech. It was a really good nice. interview. Yeah. So that's episode 30 of uh, Women's Tech Radio that just went out this morning. And now, last but not least, we are so close to me having to get on an airplane and go see Noah. We are at 521 patrons over at patreon.com slash today. When we hit 530, I got a plan to go see Noah and go out there and do a little last cribs tour of his automated home. He's got rigs all over his house to automate stuff. And my idea is, hopefully, I don't know if it'll work, Google Glass and all, but I want to put this glass on and like walk through his house and get a tour Sort of like first-person style, and then we'll make a Linux automated home episode out of it. Once we get up to 5.30, that happens. Tech Talk Today is sort of our daily thank you. So I set this up at patreon.com slash today, and it's it's a Tech Talk Today Patreon page, but really that's just my way of showing up in the morning saying thank you for supporting us, even though I lose an episode from time to time. Uh, And uh, I have the WWDC live coverage up on the uh, Patreon page right now. Plus, when Noah was here in studio, there is a behind-the-scenes video with him doing the machine build that the mobile room is on right now, patreon.com slash today. That gives us the runway to plan and not have to go too heavy on the sponsorships. And it also helps us create things without really having to worry about how would a sponsor like this or how would we fit a sponsor into this show? Where, where in the format would a sponsor go? When we worry more about getting funding from our audience, we just think, how can we make this a fantastic show for our audience? We don't really think so much about what's going to sell to a sponsor. And that changes the formula. That changes the recipe of how a show was created. And I love that. I love that you guys are the boss. Patreon.com slash today. Let's get that up there. We have so many things we need to do, and your support makes it possible. Thank you very much. Patreon.com slash today. All right, so I'm going to leave you with an end-of-show clip video to sort of underscore a point that I was just making a few moments ago. And uh, then after that, it'll be whatever is left of yesterday's episode that never made it out. Thank you for being here. I hope to see you tomorrow. We do this show at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, jblive.tv, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar <laughs> to get that converted to your local time zone. I don't know what happened there. I don't know what happened there. Uh, techtalktoday.reddit.com makes this show better. I'd love to get a Kickstarter of the week. We've ha- we haven't had one for a little while. And I'm disappointed because there was a pop-up tent Kickstarter with LED tent poles that totally should have made it into the show. But we didn't find out about it until after it was funded. Just saying, techtalktoday.reddit.com. All right, thank you so much for joining me. See you back here tomorrow. I'll leave you with this end of show clip and then whatever we can salvage from yesterday's episode. See you tomorrow. Safari is based on standards. It's very modern technology. So here's a list of some of the standards. I don't have time to go through these, but you can go to our website and see them all. Just all the latest and greatest stuff in Safari. And how did we do this? We base Safari on an HTML rendering engine that is open source. About half the code in Safari is this open source rendering engine. Now, we started working with this open source code base over a year ago, and it needed a lot of improvement. We've dramatically improved the performance. Some things are up to an order of magnitude faster. Some people have a problem with open source. We think it's great. We think it is great. And we are going to be putting all of our improvements to this code base. We're going to be posting them on the web today. The code base that we decided to start with was KHTML. It's very popular in the Linux world. And it was a very well-architected HTML rendering engine that is now dramatically improved. And the HTML rendering engine in Safari, we have built an incredible browser around it. And we could not be happier. 
Good morning from a warm Pacific Northwest. It is indeed Tuesday, June 9th, 2015. This is Tech Talk Today, episode 180. I don't know what blows my mind more, the fact that it's June or it's episode 180. It's too much. It's too much. Uh, it could be. I just, I'm just i still sort of a little hungover from too much apple juice yesterday. I'm a little, I have an apple juice hangover today. And uh, yes, we are going to talk about some of the Apple news. We've got to. But we're not going to we're not going to spend the whole episode on it. We have more coverage in Coda Radio that came out yesterday. If you want to uh, hear more about that, uh, so uh, we do have some things to jump into. I got to say, just got back from the camping trip, and uh, it went pretty well. I, I ended up bringing some. Uh, uh, a, a, uh, <laughs> it's kind of funny, actually, you guys. <laughs> now that I think about it, I brought portable USB battery chargers. You know, like four thousand milliamp, and uh, and and one that I know there's way better ones. Like uh, the chat room just linked me one to a ten thousand milliamp uh, portable battery on Amazon that, that looks boss level. Um. Uh, so I brought portable battery chargers for my phone and for my watch. Solid. Never lost battery power. Turns out my watch just totally lost connection with my phone over the weekend anyways, and it was completely a worthless piece of junk. It did track my sleep like I wanted, but the time was wrong, all this stuff. It was a, it was a, it was a disaster. So I should have just left it all behind. I didn't really regret bringing it, though, because I ended up having my, uh, my, my well, really my camera which is also now my S6. Uh, so I got some amazing, amazing pictures from the trip that I wouldn't have gotten had I, le- had I left my, my, uh, my phone at, at home. So I, I, am glad I, brought, I'm, I am glad I brought the phone. I was able to get some, some incredible pictures of uh, really w- w- just such a beautiful state. Uh, so I had a great time, had a great camping trip, but we are here to get into the news, so let's do that. Time-appropriate greetings, Mumble Room! Hello. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. So I'm sure you're all fairly current um, on the Apple WWDC event, 2015 WWDC was yesterday. The keynote uh, kicked off by Tim Cook. We had live coverage on the JBLive.tv stream. And if you are a Tech Talk Today patron, you can have the entire thing up on our Patreon page. Uh, we recorded all of it with our Mystery Science 3000 commentary sprinkled in there from bit to bit. Uh, and so uh, I think there's a lot to cover, but we don't need to go through all of it because you guys can read that crap anywhere. Uh, so let's talk about uh, some of the things that I was most interested about, and uh, that is the uh, – uh, well, really the thing I was most interested in about was Swift, but uh, we'll save that for just a moment. Uh, but I, I guess I, I just want to start with the music service. I don't know if I could say I'm the most interested in it, but it's here. And we'd, we had been debating this in just a previous episode last week about what it would have to have to be competitive. Uh, so today uh, we have a little bit of information. It's going to be $9.99 a month with a three-month uh, introduction, free trial. Uh, there will be a family plan, which is actually seems to be more competitive than some of the others. Fourteen ninety nine for six users. <clears throat> Spotify right now is twenty nine ninety nine for five. However, Spotify said they're going to offer discounts soon. Uh, they have a, a two hundred fifty six kilobit um, uh, AAC stream. Seems to be pretty high quality. Uh, Spotify maxes out at three twenty kbps MP three for premium subscribers, and then it has the live DJ that I thought would be rather compelling. A couple other bits of information we have learned also since the keynote last night. Uh, the Apple Music service will allow offline downloads. However, the entire library will not be available for do- downloads. But as you stream the first track, as you stream that, it will cache it to your device. Uh, Apple will also be releasing an Android version of the music client and uh, starts June 30th. Mumble Room, any thoughts on Apple Music? Are you impressed at all? Is anyone inclined to give it a try? Well, if I had any Apple products, maybe I would. Um, well, but you should have an Android uh, device, right? You could use the Beats One application on the Android device. Or Apple Music, as it'll be called. 
I could, but I already enjoy using uh, Google Play Music. So there's there's really no reason for me to switch, honestly. Yeah. Um, anybody else have any thoughts? I'd give it a try. Oh, you would be. You would be hesitant, to... though. Oh, really? You'd be willing to give it a shot? Yeah. Yeah, pay me. <laughs> uh, Corky, what about you? No. No? Corky just randomly steps away sometimes. Uh, here's what I here's what my thoughts are. And Sean or, and and Son, if you guys want to, or Mitt, if you guys want to jump in, uh, feel free. I'm looking at this as, as a direct competitor to Spotify. I, I about about a few months ago, um, I sort of just threw in the towel and said, ah, I'm sick of trying to manage my media collection. I'm just going to try Spotify for a while. I've seen some friends use it and they seem to like it, and it turns out I like it too. I don't need to own my music. I don't. Get, I'm, I'm music cool. I enjoy music a lot. <clears throat> it's not a big part of my life. Uh, I, I mean, I've always listened to music. I always will listen to music. I don't need a collection of music. I don't need to own my music. I know that sounds probably to some of you awful. The truth, be, the truth is, is if you took away all my music forever and told me I could never have it again, I probably would give a crap for about 10 minutes. Um, so it's not, a, it's not a big deal to me. So moving over to Spotify was kind of interesting because it combined my local music collection with their streaming music. And their premium sounds actually pretty good. Their extreme quality passes my ear sniff test. So I don't see anything here that moves me away from Spotify. Anything at all. Because Spotify has a native Linux client. Well, quote unquote native Linux client. They have a web player. They're available on all the platforms. And the other thing that Spotify has that Apple Music probably will never have, and this is a big deal for me, is there's a Spotify client for the PlayStation, there's a Spotify client for the Roku, there's a Spotify client for the well, there's a Spotify Connect client for the Amazon Fire. The set top box support is gonna be way more diverse for Spotify than it ever will be for Apple Music. Well guess what? In a lot of homes, your Roku or your Apple Fire, or your Amazon Fire, I mean. Those are connected to your best speakers in your house a lot of the times, because they're in your, 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 home, your home theater. So to not have my music on my best speakers in my house, and in my house in particular, I have speakers throughout my entire house that are driven from the receiver in my living room. So whatever is hooked up to my receiver in my living room can play music throughout my entire house. And so that's just a slam dunk. When you, when you look at it from set-top box support, Spotify... Spotify beats out Amazon Prime, Tidal, and Google Play Music. Spotify just wins hands down right there. Uh, but that's just one of the many reasons for me. That is one thing I wish Google Play Music uh, would do. Was uh, I wish they had a Roku channel. Does uh, Chromecast uh, help? You know, are you able to use like yes. DLNA and things yes, like that? Yes, it does. Um, Chromecast actually just natively, you know, obviously, you, you just Google Play yeah. and you hit cast yeah. and off you go. Um, the one thing it doesn't do is it doesn't support uh, playing side loaded music uh, on over your Chromecast. So, so music that you've uploaded to Google Play Music or music that's on your device that you've side loaded in physically, those won't play uh, over okay. your Chromecast. Ah, good to know. So it has to be it basically has to be things they have in their library, their license to right. stream. It has to be stuff you're streaming from them or that you've that you've downloaded from Google Play Music onto your device. Roger. Um, interesting. So here's my, my final take on the Apple Music thing is I kind of want Ange to try it so that way I can, I can observe it from afar and compare it to Spotify without me having to try it. Because the, the only other reason, the only other thing that might make me try it just for the 30-day free trial is if they had a really good Android app. Because um, I, I do this sometimes accidentally, and then I regret it so badly. Uh, I, I launched – I was I – was, I was talking to Ange about Spotify, and so I launched Spotify on her iPhone, and it 
is so much faster on the iPhone. She has an iPhone 5S. I don't. How old is that? Two years old? Is that a three-year-old, two-year-old phone? What is it, two, year, two years old? Two years. She has an iPhone 5S, and I have a Samsung Galaxy S6 Edge with an eight-core processor and three gigabytes of RAM, okay? And the transitions and the menus and the application and the launch times and everything is faster on her device. We're both on the same Wi-Fi network. Everything. It is a better experience. So if they can make a really good Android app that... And not that the Spotify, you know, it's funny because I didn't really think the Spotify app was all that bad. I noticed sometimes they were forcing some blurred um, backgrounds to, to sort of emulate how iOS 8 does it when, with cover art. And, and, and sometimes that loads in like half a second after the UI loads in. And, and whereas in iOS, they just sort of inherit that functionality based on the... So I thought, okay, maybe that's... But it is making a big difference apparently because Spotify on the, on the Android version on the Linux version, on the Android version, is doing like fake blurs and, and grab and sampling the background image and then underlaying that under the menus on the Android version and then doing a, and then doing then doing a gloss blur. Where on iOS, it just that's all that just you, I, I think I think they just inherit that functionality and they're not having to re, they're not having to invent that wheel on the iOS client, so it's faster. So I don't think it's inherently an issue with Android so much as is they're trying to make the Spotify version of Android act a lot like the iOS version. So if Apple could come out and just make a nice clean, wouldn't it be amazing if they even did Material Design Music Client for Android? They they might get me on the UI sometimes if the services are comparable and the UI is better, I, I might switch. But right now. Spotify has a much better ecosystem, way more diverse clients, and uh, I, I have no complaints with the Spotify music library either, so that doesn't necessarily make me want to jump either. Uh, uh, they, uh, oh, a pseudonym says the 502 update fixes that. Oh, I haven't, you know, I think I'm still on 501, so I, you know, that, that, that could be, I, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, so also, the other big news that I felt, there's a lot of other things. We got uh, OS X El Capitan, uh, iOS 9 features demoed. Nothing too compelling there, especially for those of us that have used uh, a uh, Linux desktop environment for a while. But this is compelling for those of us that have used a Linux desktop environment for a while. Apple announces Swift 2 will be open source. Now, I'm betting, because I haven't seen any details yet, maybe the chat room knows or the mumble room knows, I'm betting we're talking like Apache or MIT license, something like that. Uh, so not only does, is Swift 2 seeing some improvements, uh, they say much improved uh, compile times, markdown in the comments, protocol extensions, uh, a lot of little things that people have uh, improved error handling. Um. Now they're also saying that with version 2, they will be open sourcing Swift and making a Swift compiler and a standard set of Swift 2 libraries available for Linux. For Linux. For OS X. For iOS and Linux. Do you notice what operating system I didn't just say? Anybody notice? Um, was it that one by the people that, uh, that double glazing company? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just, I mean, wow. iOS, OS 10 and Linux, not windows. What's that about? It's got to be a compiler thing. Just comes straight down to LVM, you think? Or do you think it's... I, I, I suspect it's not that. I, I, Apple, Apple, no. I mean, that's a good possible, like, additional reason. This is the richest company in the technology industry. They could pretty much move any obstacle. 
And they could just whole cloth replace something, too, if it, if it prevented them from doing what they want. I mean, hell, that's what they do every single time. That's what Swift is. I think it might be a component. I think it's much more self-serving. I think what it really is is the vast majority of iOS apps today are client-server models. A ton of the back-end stuff is being done on the server. A ton Way more than you guys realize, likely. Like, take the Uber app, for example. The, the, the fundamental functionality of what the Uber app can do, like, from, I'm, I'm not joking, from driving people around to being a kitty delivery service. How much you charge and rush services and all of that can all be changed server-side. And then the UI updates. Uh, Marco Armit has talked about in his Overcast application. He can reorder the settings menu, the order of the options in the settings menu by changing the config on his server. And then the application renders that when it loads the window. And, and I think what Apple wants to do here is they want the entire front-end application and the entire back-end application written in Swift. Well, that means Linux. Because a lot of these iOS apps, are, they're not connecting to Macs to run the server infrastructure. They're connecting up to DigitalOcean droplets and Linode, VPSs, and Amazon EC2 instances, and Rackspace, and Azure, etc., etc. Linux boxes. Linux, 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 Linux. It's all Linux on the server. They're not, they don't give a crap about desktop applications. You can't write a desktop app on Linux for Swift. You don't have any of the infrastructure Swift depends on. But you could write a headless server application. Real, real nice one. So I think it's a pretty smart move, and it's a good starting spot. And if it gains traction, then Apple will be doubled down in investing in it. And it's an interesting competitor to things like Golang and Rust and other, 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 or, or now Microsoft's open source.net. I mean, there's an interesting thing that's happening here, isn't it? And look, 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 look what happened when Microsoft open source.net. Pretty soon after that, we got Visual Studio Code for Linux. They don't see Linux as a competitor. Exactly. Exactly. They do not see Linux as a competitor at all. They don't. They don't sell that market. They don't think it's a competitor on the desktop. And they don't consider OS X to be a significant contender in the server space. And they're plenty happy selling iPhones, iPads, and Macs. And they don't need to get... I mean, they canceled their server. They make a Mac Mini as a server. They're not serious about servers. They don't care about servers. They care about you getting their app in the App Store. So that's why they're making Swift open source. It's not some... It's not because Apple has turned a new leaf. It's not not because Tim and Sache have been hanging out. No, it's just because they want you to write server-side software in Swift. And good for them. This is what Apple's the best at. Apple is the best at doing what serves them, but also has a secondary effect of also serving the customer. And that's what Apple does well, and that's what Apple sticks to. If it serves them, and it has the secondary effect of serving the customer, and sometimes those two things are swapped, sometimes if it serves the customer, and then them, but most of the time them first, they stick to it. So my prediction is Apple is serious about sticking and committing to Swift too. Also, <clears throat> keeping it open source and on Linux. Also, there was people at WWDC last year, 2014, that were talking to the Swift developers, the people who created Swift. And some of the most prominent Swift developers at that time a year ago at WWDC told attendees that they were committed to getting Swift open source. That it was a big deal. A year ago, they told these people at WWDC. And I think they had their way. They, they said they were, they were going to fight that battle internally and see if they could convince the powers of B. But what they said is if they convince the powers to be, Apple will stick to it. And I think that's true. Uh, I don't know if that means people are going to adopt Swift. <laughs> I, I doubt it. 
But uh, I bet it does mean you will see a lot of... Um, Boy, there's a lot of developers out there that'll be writing Swift applications on Linux. If you're a Linux sysadmin and your company is writing iOS apps with server infrastructure, you're going to be dealing with this stuff. I wonder if we'll see it in repos. Mumbaroom, any thoughts on Swift before we move on? No. Okay, that's fine. We have more. We have more coverage in uh, Coda Radio. There's not a lot. Uh, I, what's compelling about Swift? Well, you'd have to you'd have to follow Coda Radio for that. Uh, but uh, the, it, there's a lot of compelling things. A lot of compelling things about a lot of the new. I mean, same thing about Rust, right? There's a lot of compelling things with the, these new languages because they've been created with hindsight. Uh, let's talk about something else that you think, with hindsight, we would know better. But uh, no, no, we do not. Uh, so the FBI is pushing to get access to data for encrypted messaging applications like WhatsApp, and especially is interested in self-destructing applications. And now they're saying they need to do it because. ISIS. That's right. The Islamic State is just what is a big WhatsApp fan. Turns out, Islamic State likes WhatsApp. So uh, to save us all from a group of terrorists in another part of the world across a huge ocean, we must have access to everyone's WhatsApp data. It's the only logical solution. At least that's according to the FBI. Yep. Uh, to stop fight terrorism. This is what we have to do. In many cases, U.S. intelligence and law enforcement agencies can't read the messages in real time, and this is a big issue. So not only do they need to decrypt it, but they need to be able to read the messages in real time. And they say because phone companies and the app developers can't unlock coded text fast enough, they have to have access to the encryption. They say, we are going past the dark ages in certain circumstances. This is the FBI's top counterterrorism official. We are dark. The hole in the U.S. surveillance capabilities was not mentioned during the recent congressional battle over net securities agency's bulk collection of U.S. landline cell phone data. However, FBI officials now want Congress to expand their authority to tap into messaging apps such as WhatsApp, Kick, and other data-destroying apps such as Wicker, SureSpot, and hundreds of millions of other applications. Now, the FBI estimates that 200,000 people around the world see increasingly sophisticated terrorist messaging systems each day from the Islamic State. Uh, so they think they could be sending around things like direct appeals to people, videos, instruction manuals, using self-destroying messages. So perhaps the reason why we haven't been able to see ISIS talk isn't because it's a made-up boogeyman, but because they're using WhatsApp. And the only way the FBI can know is if they have real-time decrypted access. And they say, let's be crystal clear here. Now, this is from Tim Cook, interesting enough. Let's be crystal clear here. Weakening encryption or taking it away harms good people that are using it for the right reason. That was on a June 1st speech uh, when he, we talked about that later. And uh, he was talking about how Apple is being, faced, is being uh, pressured to decrypt FaceTime and iMessage communications. Uh, he was speaking via remote video, and we covered that, uh, I believe, well, when was June 1st? Uh, we covered that uh, on Tuesday, June 2nd. So there you go. Uh, what do you guys think, Mumbaroom? Is uh, is this a compelling argument for you? So uh, it's not so much about saving the children this time. It's more about stopping terrorism. And I guess if you make, say, super cheap Android devices available or Firefox OS phones available, super cheap, and you could put WhatsApp on them, you could use them to coordinate the next terrorist attack. So maybe we should give them access. What do you think? You could use a ham radio too, right? You could use smoke signals. <laughs> you know, you could use the mail, the U.S. mail that's supposed to be constitutionally protected. You could use that, too. <laughs> they could just use email GPG. Uh, yeah, yeah, they could use GPG. Ah, uh, man, that's a good one. Yeah. 
Telegram. I suppose that means they need access to Telegram. And you see, the thing about it is that some of these networks have to be re-architected. And you know they're serious about it because if you know your history with the purchase of Microsoft and Skype and Microsoft and how they re-architected Skype based on the request from the FBI, you know they're pretty serious about this. And Skype, see, back then it was easier for them because they only had one messaging system that was really popular. And now there's a whole bunch and they're just getting a little freaked out. Speaking of that... Tech companies in the U.S. are expected to lose more than $35 billion due to NSA spying. Get that? $35 billion. How important is our security now? And uh, how many people have been stopped because of the domestic surveillance? How many, how many terrorists? Uh, eight. From what I've heard, none. Well, actually, eight is, is an answer that was given at one point. Now, okay, so if you break really? that, if, yeah, yep, if you break that down, only two were from the U.S. If you break that down, only one was prosecuted. And if you break down what that prosecution was, he was transferring funds to a guy in Yemen. That is what the domestic surveillance program has netted the United States of America in the last 11 years. So, but it is costing tech companies $35 billion. And I've also noticed a lot of companies are now promoting that they're based out of Switzerland or that they're moving out of the U.S. It's become a marketing point for them, a frickin' marketing point. So the ITIF, a nonpartisan Washington, D.C.-based technology think tank uh, founded by many members of Congress, has said that they expect me- uh, American technology firms will lose between $21.5 billion and $35 billion. This is former members of Congress, people that are probably not exactly all that inclined to make the NSA look that bad. They think that actual losses, though, will far exceed $35 billion. And part of the reason is because of the, the, uh, the, the marketing. Uh, to reverse the trend, the report authors recommend the U.S. government must follow these five key directions laid out by the research. Increase transparency surrounding U.S. surveillance activities, both at home and abroad. Strengthen information security by opposing any government's by opposing any government efforts to introduce backdoors, which we just talked about. Strengthen U.S. mutual legal assistance treaties. Work to establish international legal standards for government access to data. And complete trade agreements like the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Kind of a mixed bag there, isn't it? Although I definitely agree with number two. Stop trying to put backdoors into encryption. That's from an independent think tank. Uh, it's pretty bad. It's pretty, it's pretty bad. Uh, IBM's been releasing reports to their investors saying they're losing a ton of money over it. And yet, the spying continues on. I don't really know what to make of it. It doesn't, it, it's, it's nonsensical to me. We, we don't seem to have any net positive results, and yet we seem to be able to quantify actual damage to the U.S. economy and, I think, obvious damage to the U.S. to the U.S. citizens' privacy. It's just a power grab. Yeah. So it is. Hello, everybody. So, uh, should we? Uh, do you guys want to talk about something positive? Let's let's talk about something positive. Ooh, ooh! Major Nelson just released a video as we're going on the air right now. Let's see what Major Nelson from uh, Xbox One has to tell us. That, that 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 sounds like something more positive. Let's talk about that. Hi, I'm Larry Herb, Xbox Live's Major Nelson, and in less than a week, I'll be down in sunny California for the biggest video game week of the year at E3. Oh yeah, that's right. But. Before we head down south, we've got a few things to share. Since Xbox One launched, one of the top requests from fans is to add more storage to your console. (laughs) Today, we are unveiling the new Xbox One one terabyte console. It features a new matte finish, and what we're most excited about is the one terabyte hard drive that delivers more storage for your games and media. 
So this is released today. It is a one terabyte hard drive, and the console price for the 500 gigabyte version has been reduced to $350. Also, E3 next week, going to be great for Tech Talk. This year is the biggest year in Xbox One history with the biggest blockbusters of the year. With games like Halo 5 Guardians, Rise of the Tomb Raider, and Forza Motorsport 6, you're going to need the extra storage. And the Xbox One 1TB console brings you the same award-winning multiplayer experience you're used to with Xbox Live. And you can quickly switch back and forth between games. How is it that people get excited about this exactly? And I go, go, uh, is this not the entire problem with console gaming right here? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Tell, come to explain. <laughs> what, what, what is going on? It's this basically Apple gets, um, not Apple, um, Xbox, um, Xbox going, okay, we're going to sell you really, really bad hardware. For very for the same price as one with a larger, hard, better hardware. So, that's basically just hard drive. Now, guys, I've had my Android watch has been giving me 1970 for the last couple of days, but I just wanted to double check. This is 2015, right? Like, I'm going to go to Newegg real quick. This is 2015, right? Let's just go look. How much is a hard drive going for? Seriously, like one terabyte? I mean, I understand they got to sell a lot of these things, and it's probably not an SSD, right? We're we're safe to assume it's a it's a spinning rust drive. It's not. Okay, so we're gonna go look at a spinning rust drive. Let's go look at. Uh, let's go over to Newegg here, and uh, what we, you think? Maybe a Western Digital Black, or what? What do you think they're putting in that thing? Probably not. Probably a green, huh? You think they put a green in that thing? I bet they went Seagate. Okay, I'm gonna go look at desktop drives. Let's see. Here's a Seagate, two terabyte, for ninety dollars. Okay. So Western Digital's uh, a Western Digital Blue, forty nine dollars for one terabyte. So a one terabyte drive should be costing about fifty dollars. So why couldn't you put something in there like let's just go look at how much a four terabyte drive is going to cost us? Why couldn't you put something in there like a four terabyte drive? What's that going to run? Then you got to figure they're not paying what you're paying, Chris. That's true, right? They're going to pay some great OEM rate. So this is this is what's really I guess consumers just don't care. I guess they just don't care. So what you're doing is you're buying for three hundred, for four hundred dollars, whatever it is, you're getting one terabyte. You're getting like a three-year-old video card, and I, I just, I'm not. I, I guess for that money, for that kind of money, I guess you could just, for that kind of money, you could build a PC with a fairly decent video card in it, and and a fairly decent disc in it. And update it every year. 